How do you identify a leader? Well, some will answer that question in a very simple and obvious way. A leader is someone who is in charge, one who's taking charge, someone who's giving orders and the others are listening to and following. In sports, the leader is the one who has the title head coach by his or her name, the one who's on the sidelines or, or on the side of the court who's calling plays and sending players on and off the field and on and off the court coaching his or her team. On the field, the leader is that player with captain by his or her name who's taking charge and barking out orders and making sure his or her teammates are in the right place on the field or on the court doing what they're supposed to do. Some will say in the corporate world, leaders are the ones who have the most important titles by their name. President, CEO, the one who has the largest office, makes the most money, the one everyone else answers to. Those are the leaders. And I would agree with you if you answer in that way that that is how you identify who is in a leadership position. But how does one go identifying who the true leaders really are? Maybe I should put it in this way. How do you identify a great leader? How do you identify a great leader? Now, that's a bit more difficult to answer, right? We can tell who are in leadership positions, but how do you identify who the great leaders are? Well, there's been a lot of ink spilled and trees killed in answering this question. In an article I read a while back, one common way that was given in this article to identify a great leader is to look at the way he or she responds in difficult situations. If you want to find a good, solid leader, you look at the way one deals with hardships. Look at the way one goes through trials and how they respond when times get tough. And oftentimes when leaders are being interviewed, they're put in those certain scenarios, right, to see how they would handle that. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about a man who knew how to respond when times got tough. And the interesting thing about this man in the passage we're going to look at today is that he is not in a prominent position of leadership at this time. He's on a ship with men who are, but we're going to learn this morning that just because you're in a leadership position, it doesn't make you fit to lead. And just because you're not doesn't mean you're not fit to lead. We learned that from Paul in Acts chapter 27. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 27. Remember, Paul's in custody on a ship on his way to Rome. He's going to be tried in Rome. Last week we talked about the first part of his trip from Caesarea to Rome. We learn in the first part of Acts chapter 27 that Luke is with Paul during this trip. That's why it's so detailed. We have a lot to cover today, so we will not have time to do a recap from last week, but you should have a map in your bulletin. And if you would like to, you can get online, listen to the sermon from last week. It's already up if you want details on the first part of this trip in case you missed it. I will say this from last week. When they get to Fair Havens, here it is on your map, it's a white box there. When they, when they get to Fair Havens, 
Paul suggests that they stay there for the winter months. But in those in, in leadership positions on this ship, they choose not to listen to Paul. Because Fair Havens was not a desirable spot to be because they would be hit by straight winds all winter. So they want to sail up the coast a bit. They don't listen to Paul. They want to sail up the coast a bit to Phoenix so they could stay in a more comfortable spot for the winter months. But notice in your maps or up on the screen, notice what happens when they do. We're told they set for Phoenix, and when they did this, a south wind blew gently, probably keeping them close to the shoreline, so it looks like things are going to go their way, right? Except we have verse 14 here, notice what happens, but soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster, these are dangerous winds, whirling hurricane winds, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, taken out to sea. So they don't make it to Phoenix, do they? They're in a bad way. They're storm-tossed in the midst of high winds of hurricane force in a torrential downpour. They've done all they can. They throw out their cargo. That includes food and equipment on the ship, and the storm just continues on. And they continue to be taken further and further out to see. Luke says there was no sight of the sun nor the stars to guide them. And as the storm continued on, He says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Most on board this ship had lost hope. And notice the word our. We learn here, even our narrator, Luke, has lost hope. He thought this was the end. This was as tragic a situation as you'll find in the scriptures. But notice, though almost everyone aboard this ship loses heart and believes this situation is hopeless, notice there's one who does not. Notice who steps up and takes the reins. Paul, the prisoner. And so what I want to do this morning is look at Paul's response in the midst of this tragic situation, in the midst of this storm. And I want you to notice how Paul takes control of the situation. And I also want to draw out some principles this morning about godly leadership that we learn as we look at the actions of Paul here in this extremely difficult, seemingly hopeless set of circumstances. Notice the first thing we learn about godly leadership in the midst of difficulty. Number one, godly leaders are often unlikely people. When times get tough, God often uses unlikely people for his purposes. This book is filled with story after story of unlikely people that God uses in difficult situations for his redemptive purposes. In the next book we're going to study, Esther, we learn about two unlikely people. But we have one here. Look at the first part of verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them. We said a moment ago that most everyone aboard this ship, they had lost heart. The storm's continuing on. They could barely see in front of them. They did not know where they were going. They were running low on food. No sight of land anywhere. Most everyone loses heart. Everyone except for Paul. Now, Paul was not a Roman leader. 
He was not a captain of the ship. He was a prisoner. But he is the one that God sends word to. He is the one that God wants to use to lead this ship and this crew to safety. Believers, again, we we see here, like we see throughout Scripture, God delights in using the lowly and the unlikely for his purposes. Here he is using Paul the slave to save his people. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like someone who's not very qualified to lead. You don't feel qualified to head up a ministry at our church. You don't feel qualified to lead students in in your school, students or co-workers in the workplace. You don't feel qualified to lead your families, parents in the home. Maybe you've said to yourself at one time or another, I know that God said he wants to use believers for his purposes, but God can never use me. I have nothing to offer. I'm average at best. I'm insignificant and ordinary here's the good news if you're thinking in this way if you are thinking in this way know that you're the very type of person that God delights in using how about that and the opposite is also true if your mentality is here I am God to your rescue If you come with your religious resume in hand and think that God would be fortunate to have you on the team, know that you're the least likely of people to be used by God. Godly leaders are often unlikely people. Next point, godly leaders are given wisdom to lead others. God makes godly leaders wise and they impart that wisdom to others. Though at times God calls the unequipped and the insignificant, we just talked about that, he equips those he calls. And he works in and through them and grows them into good, godly, knowledgeable, and wise men and women of God through his word by the equipping of his spirit. And he gathers people around those people so that they can benefit from the work that he is doing in and through these godly leaders so that they can be wise. Look at verse 21 once again. We're just reviewing from last week. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and had not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So we looked at this last week. Notice Paul gives them an I told you so here. He he told them not to leave fair havens and here he reminds them of that but he doesn't do that just to rub it in he's reminding them that he has some wisdom he was he was right about them staying at fair havens and he is reminding them of that in hopes that they might now listen to the advice that he's about to give paul basically says here look you guys didn't listen to me at fair havens but maybe now you're going to listen to me I'm going to give you a spoiler alert here. We're going to find out in just a moment that they do listen to Paul. First, they don't heed the advice of this wise, godly leader, and they pay the price for that. But when given a second chance, they listen, and that benefited them. Believers, there are two key points for us to keep in mind here from this point. One, we need to get into the habit of walking with the wise. I don't care how mature you are, you can always benefit from the wisdom of another godly leader. 
when it comes to your Christian walk, to being the husband or wife, parent or son or daughter that God has called for you to be. You need to be walking with godly people. You need to be walking with wise husbands, wise wives, fathers and mothers and benefiting from their wisdom. And believers, as you mature, you should be using your wisdom to lead others. Next point that we learn from Paul here. Godly leaders take God at his word and urge others to do the same. Look at verse 22. Paul says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, imagine this scene for just a moment. The situation is dark. It seems as if all hope is lost. It's so bad that even Luke loses hope. And in the midst of this dark, difficult, seemingly hopeless situation, Paul stands up and says, don't lose hope. Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. Now, how could Paul say that? How could Paul be confident to say, take heart, no one's going to die in this storm. We may lose this ship, but no life is going to be lost. How could he say that? Because he was taking God at his word. Look at verses 23 through 25. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So notice here that God speaks to Paul through an angel on this boat in the middle of the storm and he assures him once again that he's going to make it to Rome. He's done this already, right? Remember when Paul was in custody in Jerusalem, Jesus appears and says, you're going to be a witness for me in Rome. And here an angel is sent to give him that message again. And he also tells him no lives are going to be lost in the process. God gives Paul a very definitive word here. And Paul says in verse 25, I have faith in God that it'll be exactly as it's been told me therefore take heart man be encouraged do not be afraid God has promised to deliver us therefore take him at his word godly leaders take God at his word and urge others to do the same now Like we said last week, though God has not sent angels to us and spoken audibly to us and made any specific promises to our specific situation, though that may be the case, we do have a certain and sure word from God that we can and should look to and cling to and trust in, and we should urge others to do the same. In the trials of this life, we are reminded that throughout God's word, we are reminded that he loves us, he is with us he is in control he is good and he is driving history toward his good and perfect end we're called to lay hold of these promises and trust in and follow him through the storms of this life knowing these things are true and we're to urge others and lead others to do the exact same thing next thing we learn about godly leadership from Paul is that godly leaders are honest about difficulty. Look at verse 26. Paul says, but we must run aground on some island. 
Notice here, this verse is very easy to pass over, but there is great application to be made here by us from this verse. Notice, though Paul tells everyone on board that they're going to survive this storm, he also tells them it's not going to be easy. He tells them we're going to be in a shipwreck. We're going to crash on some island. We're going to be stranded. It's not going to be easy. You know, God doesn't always sugarcoat things in his word, does he? Now, we often try to do that for him. I mean, like acting as God's PR person, you know. Maybe we should say it in this way, God. It's a little, little less offensive and easier to take, right? But God doesn't do that in his word. Not every verse of scripture reads like a Hallmark card. God doesn't always blow sunshine in his word. He doesn't. God tells us in his word that life is hard. Life is messed up and we're messed up and this life is messed up because we're messed up, because of our sin. No, he gives us the the best news in the world. He tells us we can be forgiven and made right with them through the person and work of his son, Jesus. And though he promises us, believers, a glorious future in his presence forever, he also tells us until that time, we're going to struggle with sin. We're going to go through storms. We're going to be hated for being his children. We're going to endure trials. We're going to go through hardships. He gives us the good with the bad. And as we lead others, we need to share the whole counsel of God as well. We need to give the bad news with the good. We need to give it all. If God doesn't shy away from it, if his disciples and apostles and prophets, priests, and kings do not shy away from it, we should neither. And the reason why is so that people won't lose heart. And it's also to show them that the trials of this life, they serve to strengthen us and grow us in the faith. People need to know that. Paul says, we're going to survive the storm, but the ship is going down. It's going to run aground on some island. So godly leaders are honest about difficulty. Look at the fifth point. Godly leaders work hard and trust God. I love this point. Godly leaders work hard and trust God. Look at verses 27 through 29. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. This is so good. Now, remember, they have received word from God that they are going to be spared. They are going to survive. But notice their response is not, hey, God's got this. He's going to save us, so let's just sit back and do nothing. Their response is not inactivity. It's the opposite. They get busy. In verse 27, we're told on the 14th night, they had been in this storm for 14 days at midnight when they suspected they were nearing land. Now, how did they know that in the dark? Well, some commentators believe they probably heard the sound of breakers in the night as the water was coming near to the shore. But we're told that they knew they were nearing the shore, so they took a sounding. This was a device that was weighted with a hook and a line so that they could determine the depth. The first sounding they took was 
20 fathoms. One fathom is about six feet, so this is about 120 feet. And then they moved a little further in, and they took another, and it was 15 fathoms, which is about 90 feet. And at that time, they were, they were fearful that they might run on the rocks, so they let down all four anchors, and they prayed for daylight. I love this passage. Though they had been told by God's apostle that they would survive this storm, they did not just kick back and say, God's going to save us. That means we do nothing. No, they did what they could. They spotted land, made their way in slowly. They measured the depth as they moved further and further in, and then they dropped all four anchors when it was getting a bit too shallow, and they prayed for day to come and relied upon God to keep them safe from the rocks they did what was in their power and they trusted god that's the way we're to live our lives believers do you realize that that's the way we're to lead others to live their lives after we come to saving faith in jesus we're to get to work we're to pursue godliness we're to work out our salvation for it is god who works in us both the willing to do but we're to work that out Yet we're also to be completely dependent upon God to work in us and guide us and direct us and mature us. That's the way we're to live this Christian life. And that's the way godly leaders are to urge others to live their lives as well. Though we have been promised as God's people that we are one day going to be like Jesus, we're not yet there. So we are not to sit idly by and wait for that to happen. We're to put in the work. We're to run the race. We're to work out our salvation. We are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And by the way, those are all biblical phrases that you'll read this week in your study guide, okay? So godly leaders do what they can. They depend upon God and they urge others to do the same. Here's the next point. Godly leaders are concerned about the needs of others. They're concerned about the needs of others. Look at verses 30 through 32. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out the anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Boy, these sailors here are sweethearts, aren't they? We learn here in verse 30 that they were thinking only of themselves. They were wanting to get off that boat as quickly as possible. There was only one small boat that served as a means of escape. And if these sailors would have left the ship, there, there would have been no one left on board this ship who could have got them safely and navigated safely to shore. So Paul tells the centurions and the Roman soldiers about it. And he basically says, look, if we lose our sailors... And they escape aboard our only boat. Not any of us are going to make it to dry land safely. We all need to stay on board this ship and need to risk trying to get this ship to shore with these skilled sailors on board. This is a selfish move by these sailors, isn't it? These sailors didn't think twice uh, uh, putting their own safety above the rest aboard this ship. They were poor leaders in that way. Paul was the exact opposite. Look at verses 33 through 38. As day was about to dawn, 
Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God. Boy, he's being a wonderful witness here, isn't he? Giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. So God's opening up doors for Paul to minister. Verse 36. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. We've said this time and time again because we've seen this time and time again in here as we've examined the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But we see here, once again, Paul loved and cared for people, didn't he? He tirelessly and selflessly and humbly served others. He, unlike the sailors aboard the ship, thought of others first. Here in this passage, we learn they had been stressed out and they were without food for 14 days, probably because they didn't know how long they would be at sea, so they had to save that food. They're extremely hungry. They're exhausted. And I don't know about you, but if I was in their sandals, all I would want to do at this point was to have a huge plate of food, eat and drink and take a nap, right? And be left alone. Notice Paul's first concern is not his own stomach or how tired he is. His first concern is making sure all the people on board the ship are taken care of. Luke tells us, that one of the first things Paul did was to urge the others on board the ship to eat. And he does it for a few reasons. One, they're malnourished. They needed food. And two, they had, you know, they had gone for weeks without it. And then two, they needed all the strength that they could muster to make it to shore. So Paul was not just concerned about himself making it safely. He wanted everyone to. This included the centurions, uh, the centurion and the Roman soldiers and these selfish sailors along with his brothers in Christ and the prisoners on board as well. Everyone. We're then told that he took some more time to praise and thank God for saving them and providing them with all they needed. Then we're told they ate plenty and were all encouraged. Once again here, we see Paul was not all about Paul in ministry. He was all about bringing glory to God through loving and serving and caring for others. Good godly leaders function in this way. They love and serve God by loving and serving other people tirelessly and selflessly and with all humility. And believers, we should serve in this way as well. One last point. Godly leaders are trusted by others. They're trusted by others. They earn the trust of others through their service. Look at verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land. They were not where they were supposed to be. Notice where they were. Look at your map again. They were off the coast of the island of Malta. Now, you can see God's providence here, right? They could have easily missed that island, right? How did they hit that island? God's at work, right? They couldn't steer the whole way, but look where they go, 
right to that island. And God has a specific plan to use Paul on that island. We'll learn about that next week, okay? But they, they make it to Malta, and they were safe to this point. They noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore, verse 40. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, they wanted the rudders free so they could steer. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Man, he is so detailed, isn't he? It's almost like he's taking notes while this is happening. That is a rough landing, isn't it? And Luke records all of it for us. Look at verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Boy, that's real nice, isn't it? How brutal is that? After surviving this terrible storm together, they're just going to kill the prisoners. Paul included the one God had used to get them to land safely. They were going to kill them all for fear that they might get away. But notice what happens, verse 43. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make it to land, and the rest who could not swim, they got there on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land exactly as God said. Paul, though a prisoner, had earned the respect of this Roman leader, hadn't he? He did not want anything to happen to Paul because he he trusted Paul. He knew he wasn't going anywhere, and he came to his aid when other soldiers wanted to kill him and the others. Paul had earned his trust. And by looking back over this chapter, you can clearly see why, right? Paul had done nothing but give them helpful instruction. He had proven himself to be a bold and fearless and wise and selfless and honest and humble leader. And believers, we ought to lead in this way as well so that we can earn the trust of others, so that we can have open doors to minister as well. Well, I want to end this morning by reminding you once again of how we see the great mercy and grace of our God here in this story. So I want to shift gears from focusing on Paul to focusing on our saving God and the way in which he provides salvation for those on board this ship. Notice first that because those leaders aboard this ship chose to not listen to God's man, they were taken away by a storm, out to sea, headed for certain destruction. Boy, that is a great picture of what our sin has done to us. Am I right? We too have turned away from God. We too have rejected his man, his son. And we too are like a ship being storm-tossed at sea, headed for destruction. But notice here, we see in this story, God's great mercy and grace that he shows the crew on board this ship. Though they chose to reject the message of his man and deserve to be in the mess that they were in, God makes a way for them to be saved. And the way he does it is by allowing for his man, Paul, to go through this storm with them. And because Paul is on this ship with them, because Paul goes through the storm, he is able to save them from the storm. That is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done to save us. Listen, 
God also allowed His Son to go through a storm for us. We talked about this last week. Jesus experienced the worst of storms for us. He came to this earth. He took on flesh. He lived for us in this broken and fallen and sin-stained world. And He experienced the storm that we all deserve because of our sin. He suffered physically and spiritually for us. He laid down his life for us and became sin, though he knew no sin. He was crushed by God for us so that God might not have to crush us. God allowed for his son to endure the worst of storms for us so that he could save us from the storm. That's the gospel. I asked you last week, but I want to ask you again. Are you trusting in God's great Savior so that you can be delivered from the storm of God's wrath and judgment so that you can experience the great calm of being in a right relationship with God through Jesus? If not, I pray you would this morning. Give your life to Jesus if you haven't. Make Him your Lord and be saved today. Let's pray.